0: To you, Lord, we give thanks for the beauty of this day. We are thankful for the the rain and snow that you have given to us. And, Lord, we we look forward to uh, a good winter this year, that you will provide the precipitation that we need here in California. And, Lord, that it will be clearly seen as an answer to the prayer of God's people. And, Lord, somehow glory will be given to your name not only by your people, but by even those that do not yet know you. We ask, Father, that you will glorify yourself. We ask that in our midst here this morning, you'll be pleased to touch our lives according to your plan and will. We continue to acknowledge that your word is truth. It is by the word of God that we are cleansed and we are strengthened and we are shown the path upon which we should walk. And so, Father, I pray that again, you will enlighten our understanding by the power of your spirit that we will understand from the life of uh, Abram and Sari what you would have us to know that applies to our lives today, that we might live accordingly. Strengthen our faith, O Lord. We ask that you will bless throughout our Sunday school this morning, be present in every class, and we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have uh, raced through 15 chapters of Genesis in the past year. (laughs) And we're starting chapter 16. Chapter 16 is, is on this, uh, I mean, the whole chapter is on this outline, so today and next Sunday we'll, we'll cover that uh, particular chapter. It's a very fascinating chapter in the things which take place, which are recorded there, and in many ways uh, it helps us to, to get a real sense of the humanness of Abram and Sari. So often we look back at these men and women of the faith and we think of them as some kind of spiritual giants that are in a different league than we are. And as we see these things and, and look at what really happened, we recognize, hey, they were uh, flesh and blood as we. And, of course, the very fact that uh, James points out that even a great man as Elijah, a mighty prophet of God, who, who saw fire fall from heaven... He says he was a man as we are, uh, I think should help us to to recognize that God knows what we are, and he knows where we are, and God loves us anyway, and that's, I think, encouraging. So let's look at the first six verses here of Genesis 16. Now Sari, Abram's wife, had bored him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sari said to Abram, now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sari. And after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sari took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarri said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sari, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sari treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Strange, is it not? I think we've always thought that surrogacy was sort of a modern invention, but hardly. (laughs) It goes way back in time. Uh, obviously, a little bit more straightforward and uh, simple in those days than it is uh, today or can be today. We see that abram's wife 's barrenness was becoming emotionally intolerable to her. You have to imagine how this was weighing upon her that she would go to such an extreme as to do what we have read here her 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 emotional status was becoming, or or situation was becoming literally intolerable within within her. She felt shame, and she felt humiliation. Why? Well, because she had not been able to do what not only she, but the society of her day, perceived was the principal function of a wife. Now today, fortunately, we have, uh, hopefully a much broader understanding of what marriage is all about and what the function of the husband and the wife is. But through much of history, it's been considered by many peoples that the primary function of a wife is to to bring forth children. She was 75 years of age. Now, even in that day, even in a time when people still lived somewhat older than they do now, that was beyond the natural age for childbearing. Apparently, uh, she was believing it was impossible for her to bear a child. And actually, notice what she said to her husband The Lord has prevented me, He has restrained me from having children. And she's in effect saying, It's God's fault, really, that I haven't had any children. Now, in those days, they had really no idea in terms of the uh, biological factors which were involved. I mean, they, they knew the basic process, but they didn't know how it all worked. And generally speaking, uh, barrenness was virtually always credited to the failure of the wife. There was no thought that the husband was in any way at fault. And of course, in this case, we discovered that, of course, he wasn't. But uh, it was never even a thought uh, prior to this particular time. So. She resigned herself to the idea, therefore, that she was going to have to have a surrogate child. That she would have to have a child given to her through her handmaid, Hagar. Now, this was not a new idea to her. It was apparently, from what we can determine, an accepted practice in that part of the world in that time. A child born of the union of the head of a household or a clan chief to one of his wife's maids that had been given to him as wife or concubine, that particular child would become the actual child of the husband and of his wife that had been barren. In other words, she herself would become its mother. Obviously not by flesh, but by legal standing. Now, think about this for a moment. It was not easy for Sari to do this because she was giving her husband. As far as we know in scripture, there's nothing to indicate that Abram and Sari had not been first husband, first wife for each other. They had been married. We don't know how long. There's no indication in scripture how long they'd been married, but we have to assume they'd been married for decades and decades Neither had known another man or a woman, and now for her to turn her husband over into the arms of another woman, this was not an easy thing for her to do. I think it emphasizes how stressed out she really was by this whole problem. How much she desperately felt that she had to somehow provide for her husband that child, that heir, to all that he had built up. She was desperate. And this is is the act of a desperate woman. It, of course, displayed impatience. And that's why I've entitled this section, The Impatience of Abram and Sari, because they're moving ahead of God's plan. They're not waiting. They're, They're deciding to do it their way. They figure this must be what God meant. It also displays a weakening of faith, but it doesn't display a lack of faith. And we'll note, why that is so a little bit later. But what is very interesting to me is it serves as a wonderful illustration of that often quoted non-biblical proverb that God helps those who help themselves. (laughs) I've heard that quoted so many times, and I've heard people quote that as if it came right out of the pages of Scripture. Well, God helps those who help themselves, you know. Well, I guess that would give a looter a good uh, (laughs) biblical proverb to work under, wouldn't it? In reality, the Bible teaches the opposite. God helps those who what? Cannot help themselves. That's what God has done. I mean, none of us sitting here this morning, none of us from Adam and Eve could ever have helped ourselves into the kingdom of God. God had to do it. We were all totally helpless. And if we could help ourselves, God wouldn't have bothered, right? In fact, Paul talks a lot about that in Romans. If if you could really earn your way into heaven by keeping the law, then there wouldn't have been any purpose in Jesus Christ coming and, and making the sacrifice. But that was impossible. The law came, as Paul said in Galatians, to be our schoolmaster, to show us how far short of the glory of God we really came. And so... We have an illustration here, though, of the idea, at least put into practice, that God is going to help those who help themselves, so we're going to help ourselves, and obviously this has got to be God's way of doing it. The passage we read here, and there are many other passages in Scripture that demonstrate this truth, that when we try to carry out God's plan, what seems to be God's purpose, in the strength of the flesh, in human wisdom... We will fail miserably. Sometimes we wonder, and of course it's very difficult for us to understand the whole situation without being in it, but sometimes we wonder why some churches fail so miserably. And I think sometimes it's simply because the effort to found and to develop that church was was put forth in the flesh. Somebody has been trained in seminary, you know, and he's learned all the greatest, you know, the ABCs C's of church growth, and and he goes there and he tries to put it into action, but without really seeking the mind and the strength of God and bringing a core group of people that will pray, I, I'm being more and more convinced that prayer is at the absolute root of it all. If you don't have prayer, you might as well just give up the whole thing. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen the way God wants it, and anyway. it's going to happen like it did here. It's going to be a mess. And uh, I feel that uh, this seems to be borne out over and over again in Scripture. Now, why had they not had a child before now? I mean, God knew that Abram and Saria were getting older and older. I mean, you know, 75 and 85, not exactly uh, young squirts anymore. Uh, and even though uh, Abram would live to be 175, you know, he was only about halfway to the end at this point. It was still past the normal childbearing years of, of, of that life in those days. So why was God delaying? Why was he taking so long to fulfill his promise? He had made a promise, but God was putting their faith to the test. And God does that. Now, why does God put our faith to the test? Well, he does it to strengthen us. I'm constantly reminded of the uh, illustration that if you walk along the uh, shore over on the coast, Particularly in the San Francisco to Monterey Bay area, you see a lot of trees which are called Monterey Cypress. And the Monterey Cypress grow right uh, up on the coast, they're right on the bluff, right? There's nothing between them and the sea but air. And you look at those trees and they're all like this, you know, they're all bent like this. And uh, it, they, you can obviously tell which way the wind blows there from the way the trees are pointing. And uh, I understand that as those trees are buffeted, the roots go deeper and deeper and deeper so that those trees will stand. And it doesn't matter if a hurricane comes along, those trees will stand because the roots have been going deeper and deeper and deeper. Now, if those trees had no wind blowing, if it was a perfectly calm coast and they just sat there and they grew and the roots just coming kind of out a little bit and the big old wind came along, and flattened flatten them all. But this constant force of the wind blowing against them drove their roots deep. And, and to me, that illustrates why our faith is tried. God tries our faith so that we'll drive it down deeper and deeper into him and into, into his word and into truth. God doesn't want us to have a shallow faith that cern soon, soon as a, a major storm comes along, we just flat out, you know, we give up the whole thing and decide that it wasn't for us. God wants our faith deep and strong. Let me read in First Peter chapter 1 couple of verses there. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. At the revelation of Jesus Christ he wants us to be like fine pure gold and thus the trials are going to come along the fires are going to come along what what do do we sing that song Uh, must we uh, what go live or dwell on flowery beds of ease while others sail the bloody seas quite often the picture is of the missionaries who, who die uh, on the foreign field. You know, when the Christian Missionary Alliance first established its first field in Africa, they lost all the missionaries at the end of the first year. I mean, they all were dead and buried uh, over in Africa because of disease. And this kind of thinking stimulates that kind of songwriting. And sometimes today we almost c- can fit into that uh, picture that if we really look at our situation, we, w- most of us here this morning, at least as far as I know, Uh, Have a roof over our heads when we go home and we have a decent bed to uh, crawl into we have warmth if we want it We can turn the thermostat and either get hot or cold whatever. We we really like we probably have food at home That uh, will satisfy our needs and really as far as the physical things are concerned. We we have nothing to complain about That doesn't mean we don't have trials in other areas and we certainly do In fact, I think in America, we're tried in other areas because those areas are, for the most part, so adequately provided for. And sometimes those other kinds of trials are more difficult, actually, when you think about it. Think how simple life is if all you have to figure out tomorrow is how to eat. And you don't have to worry about anything else. Just figure out how to eat and how to feed your family tomorrow. It's the only thing you had to worry about. (laughs) Nothing else. Uh, Life would be pretty simple. It could be pretty uh, (laughs) tedious and on the edge all the time, but it would be pretty simple. But uh, God brings these trials, these storms, these tribulations, that the proof of our faith being more precious than gold, which itself is perishable. Gold will perish. Oh, yeah, true. Gold has been dug up from the bottom of the sea that's been down there for thousands of years, and you just kind of brush over it a few times, and it glistens uh, like new, because it doesn't, uh, you know, it, it doesn't bond with other things very well, like silver and some of the other metals do, but itself is perishable. Gold will not last forever. But our faith is to be tried so it will bring praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That was what God was doing here for Abram and Sarai, not only so that he would be glorified at the day when they stood before him, but for their own sakes, that they would be able to stand strong later in life because the roots of their faith were deeper, because other trials would come their way. Now, God had planned to fulfill his promise. He always fulfills his promise. But in his time and in his way. And he intended to to fulfill his promise by miraculously providing for Abram and Sarai, a child. Now, if the child were born during a time When they were normally physically able to produce such a child, what great credit would go to God? Now, any true believer thanks God for the safe delivery of a child at any point in life. But you're especially going to be amazed, and many others will be amazed too, if when you're twice as old as you ought to be, a child is born healthy and well, and you are healthy and well. God wanted to bring glory to his name and strengthen their faith. Such a display of his power would greatly do that, of course. And, of course, in the eyes of all those that were of the household. Remember, Abram had a household of probably 2,000 people, counting all of those that served him and worked in his uh, caravan, uh, you know, business and, and, and in his herding and whatever else all he was doing in a very, very large household. Not only that, but the, the people around, the, the uh people he was allied to there at Hebron, and then around beyond that, all of these people would witness the power of God through this. Later on, you all know the story so well, uh, there would be a man by the name of Gideon, and Gideon would be chosen by God to, to save the people from the uh, oppression of the Midianites, who were crushing Israel to death. And Gideon didn't feel like he was strong and able But God said, I will be with you, O warrior of the Lord. And then he was able to raise up an army of 32,000 men to do battle with the Midianites. Now that was smaller than the force of the Midianites to begin with, but God said, that's too many men. And you remember God weeded it down to 10,000 because everybody who was afraid was told to go home and 22,000 were honest (laughs) and went home. 10,000 decided they were going to be brave even though their knees were knocking and they, they must have knocked for a lot harder if, when they saw, you know, two-thirds of the force go home. And then God said, that's still too many, and the force was weeded down to 300. Now, it's absurd to think of 300 men. I mean, even if they were all black belts, you know, uh, to go against an army that was probably 100,000. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense at all. And yet, God did that for a special purpose, and that was to prove that the flesh was not victor. He did not bring victory through the power of the flesh. It came because of the miraculous intervention of God. God wants his people at all times and in all places to be fully aware of the fact that faith in him is not an existential leap in the dark, We don't put faith in God simply because we don't know what else to do. So I'm going to trust in God because I've tried everything else and nothing else works. Uh, But I don't really know what it means, but I'm just going to kind of leap off and trust in God. Well, God wants us to know you're not leaping in the dark when you trust in him. To commit ourselves to him is to commit ourselves to the ultimate reality. To the reality, this seems like a strange I don't know how else to put it in, in English, but the reality that's more real than the reality that we know, whatever that means. But you know, ultimately, God is reality. And that reality is an almighty, all-compassionate Heavenly Father. And as I've emphasized several times before, there are many people who study the Bible. In fact, I, I may have told you this, but back when I was in part of my undergraduate training, I had a professor... Who basically this was at a state university. Who basically said that the uh, Old Testament gives us a picture of a paranoid God, a God who's so concerned about his about his uh, uh, you know power and 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 about people believing in him that he went around striking people dead and doing all these kinds of things. That you no, know, I, I didn't argue with the the person at that particular time about that. But the Old Testament, as you read it carefully, is just as illustrative of a compassionate, loving, kind God as is the new. There is no difference between the God of the new and the God of the Old Testament. He's the same God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, He's not different in the new from what he is in the old. And you read the Old Testament in detail, and it just keeps coming out of page after page after page of Scripture. And some think that in the New Testament, God's justice doesn't show through. Well, it does. God is the same. He is not changed. And, uh, you know, the principles of the new are found all in the old. I mean, the same principles that you find in the old are the principles of the New Testament. And to me, this illustrates this almighty, all-compassionate Heavenly Father. Now, it's really important, I think, for us to note that the failure of Abram and Sari at this point did not prevent God from carrying out his plan, and it did not negate his promise. Why not? Well, I've given what I believe are two reasons. First of all, God's promise in this case was not conditional. Now, many of God's promises are conditional. Conditional. In other words, God will bless in this way if we do this, thus and so. And of course, you you read back in the Pentateuch about the things that God said. These will be your blessings if you do these things, and if you do these things, this will be the curse that will come upon you. And they stood on the two mountains, you know, Ebal and uh, Gerizim, and they echoed back the curses and the blessings to each other under the orders of Moses' assistant. What's, what's the guy's name? Yeah. Joshua. Thank you. Joshua. <laughs> Jacob kept coming to mind. He said, it's not Jacob. Joshua, right. God's promise here is not conditional. Remember, we, we looked at this particular chapter, the 15th chapter last week, and we saw that God made a unilateral covenant with with Abram. God alone passed between the pieces. Abram did not. God made the covenant. It was one sided. And as I mentioned before, that's very parallel to the new covenant made through Jesus Christ. It was unilateral. God chose to send his son. And his son came to die for us, irrespective of what we did or who we were, because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so that is, is what we see here. Uh, if we are truly born-again believers and thus are citizens of the kingdom of God, there is absolutely nothing that can prevent God from bringing Him to us, uh, us to Him. Romans 8, you're very familiar with this particular passage, but I'd like to review it for a moment. Romans 8 beginning at verse 31. We hear Romans 8:28 quoted so often, and I understand, it's a wonderful promise, but the whole eighth chapter is wonderful. Mm -hmm. Romans 8, beginning at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, you realize, and I realize, I trust, that doesn't mean that there isn't anybody who's against us, it just means there's nobody who can prevail against us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that passage is meant to be all-inclusive. And of course, there is hardly any language in which every absolute thing could have been listed there. But it is inclusive to mean all things. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God if we are in Christ Jesus. Now, I have, you probably have too, and I don't know, maybe you have thought this way. There was a time when I did. But you can't write in there, except myself. I can separate myself from the love of God by throwing away my salvation, turning my back and walking off into the sunset and telling God to take his salvation. I don't want it. If we have truly been born again and if we have been brought into the kingdom of God so that we are an actual citizen of that kingdom, this applies to that too. That's not possible to do. First of all, you probably won't do that. Second of all, even if you tried to, God would Put the hook in there and bring us back. Because you can't stop being what God has created you to be. It's just like trying to stop being a human being. You can't stop being a human being. You were born one. You will forever be one. And, you you know, a person can kill himself, but that doesn't stop him from being a human being. Your son is your son forever. Even if he divorces you, which I guess you can do nowadays, or uh, you know divorce him or, or whatever he still is your son or your daughter is your daughter and so it is with God you know, how, how could we separate ourselves from the Heavenly Father more easily than we could separate ourselves from our own physical parents it seems absurd when you think about that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God his promise was not conditional secondly God knew the hearts of Abram and Sari. He knew that in their hearts they were not rebels. (coughs) And this is really important. They truly believed God, but they were acting foolishly in a moment of weakness. They were just overcome by the enormity of the years that had crept upon them. Maybe you and I are every once in a while too. And the, the thinking was, boy, there's no way a child could be born at this time. Not that they would have said, oh, God could not possibly create a miracle. I'm sure they would not have said that. But they were acting as if they believed that. Now, how do we know that this is so? Well, let me just read a verse. I don't have it on your outline there, but you could put it in there if you wanted to. Hebrews 11.11. This is a very, very interesting verse in light of these things that we are reading and will yet read. Remember later on, you all know the story that when the angel came and told Abram, a year from now, your wife's going to have a child, and she laughed in the tent. She overheard it. And when the angel said, how come you laughed? Oh, I didn't laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you did laugh. (laughs) You read those things, you read this, you think, boy, you know, why didn't God find somebody else? But it says here, by faith, even Sarah, notice, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now you read that verse and you read this passage and you say, is he talking about the same woman? Yeah, he's talking about the same woman because he knew the depths of her heart. He knew that down in the bottom of her heart she believed, but she was having a hard time bringing that depth of of, of belief to the reality of everyday life. Is that ever a problem for us? I, I think it is. We believe deep down inside, but sometimes we act as if we didn't. Because of the pressures of life every day, uh, because it doesn't seem logical, because somebody gives us bad advice or urges us to do something as, to, as happens here. You know, it, it really applies, I think, to us each and every day. She really did believe. God knew that she was not a rebel, God knew he was not a rebel. He knew what they didn't even know themselves. To me, that's real encouraging because I fail, and probably some of you do too, and to recognize that God really knows my deep down motivation. and God knows I really do want to do what he wants me to do. I really want to be the person he wants me to be, but the flesh keeps getting in the way and I keep doing the wrong thing. And that's exactly what they're doing here. And God is saying, but I know your heart, and therefore you've not negated. Of course, you couldn't negate it in the first place because it was God's unilateral covenant. But there will be consequences. God doesn't let us get off scot-free for our folly. There are consequences. And they would experience those consequences personally, themselves, in this life. And then their descendants would experience these consequences and are experiencing them right now, this hour, in the Near East. And wherever else the Arabs and the Jews face each other. This passage illustrates some other important factors that I'd like for us to note here. Notable factors, I've called them. One of these is... The truth that in matters of family and faith, wives are as, inca- are as capable as husbands of acting unwisely. Now, you might think that's a strange statement, but we've gone through cycles in, in the history of Western man. There was a time when everything went wrong was blamed on the wife. Obviously, men couldn't fail. I mean, after all, they're the, they're the big cheeses. They know what's right, and, and the wife's always wrong. <laughs> And then you, you come to our day and age where we've kind of got these seminars going all the time where kind of the heavy load keeps falling on the husband and often that's where it ought to be. But it, you, know, you almost get to the point where husbands are always wrong and the wives are always right. And that's not true either. We're all flesh, we're all human, we're all capable of acting foolishly. And in this case, she was acting foolishly as he would also. She is the one who hatched the plan. As far as we can tell, there's no indication here that he talked about it ahead of time. It seems like she hatched the plan and came to her husband and broached it to him and then urged him to implement it. Now, it was Eve, right, who urged Adam to share the fruit with her. The power of a wife is very, very great. And she must be careful how she influences her husband, especially if it's something that would naturally appeal to him anyway. To urge a husband to do something that the flesh already says, sounds like a good idea, is is very, very dangerous. She was very, very unwise at this point. But secondly, we do have to note that Abram listened to his wife. It says it very clearly there in the passage. Abram listened to Sari. And I think willingly carried out the plan. You know, I don't think he had to talk to himself for three weeks and, and kind of just work himself into it. I think he thought it was probably an okay plan from pretty well the start. But regardless of his wife's influence, Abram bore the ultimate responsibility here for the unwise and faithless act. After all, who was it who had the vision? It wasn't Sarve. It was Abram who had had the vision it was Abram that God had spoken to in the 12th chapter. It was Abram that, that God spoke to in the 15th chapter and had this, this great vision of this covenant. And he shared it, of course, with his wife. But he is the one who had the vision. And therefore, he bore the greater responsibility to stand firm in faith. This is what he should have done. Hebrews chapter 10. Hindsight is always better than foresight, right? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Now, he couldn't have quoted that passage to, sorry, because it hadn't been written but he could have given her the basic truth because he already knew that. God had promised, God cannot lie, therefore it must be, we must have patience even if it takes what seems like forever. That's the way he should have reacted. But he didn't, he acted in the flesh, not by faith. Now this is, of course, just guesstimation, but... I really feel probably Hagar was not physically unattractive. She probably was, you know, appealing to him. And I think he found this a wonderful opportunity to indulge the flesh. Without serious thought of possible long-lasting repercussions. I mean, after all, it's his wife that's urging him to do it. And that would be the main hang-up, Right. So if she's the one urging me to do it, what could, what could else come out of this that wouldn't be okay? Well, diddle it, little did he realize it would be a son. <laughs> and that, that would be one gigantic problem. <laughs> yes. Yes, very much so. And then thirdly, even if this particular practice was socially acceptable in those days, and legal and could produce what would legally be considered in the eyes of man, a son to Abram and Sari. It made no sense at all, given given the implications of God's promise. The the implication of God's promise was, of course, that the child would be of Abram's body. Didn't say specifically of Sari's body, but that was the clear implication. The implication was that it would be one that would come from this man's line. Hagar was an Egyptian. Now, that means she not only was not a Hebrew, she wasn't even of the same son of Noah. She was of Ham, not of Shem. So no matter how you looked at it and what way you cut it, the child would be a half-breed. The child would not be one that came from Abram's line, half of him would be descended from the line of Ham. Totally foreign to the promise of God through the line of Shem. And then lastly, fourthly, or D as it is there, um, Abram, we're told in this passage, had lived in Canaan 10 years. Now what that means is that from the time he left Haran until this moment had been 10 years. He had traveled through Canaan. He'd gone all the way down to Egypt. He'd had his little to-do down in Egypt. And, and they'd come back, and uh, they'd lived in Canaan again, and they'd chased after Chetalamer and, and met Melchizedek and come back to Hebron again. And, and all of that happened in a 10-year span. Ever think about, I'm sure you have, and I've thought about it often, um, awful lot of that 10 years we don't know anything about. <laughs> Probably because life was pretty humdrum, in between, you know, herding sheep and running caravans and just kind of doing the normal things of life. It doesn't make for exciting reading. But 10 years had passed. So this is an inclusive statement of all of the time from the time he left Haran to this, this particular moment. He was 75, we're told in the scripture, when he left Haran. Thus he is now 85. And this is confirmed when we read a little bit later in the passage that when Ishmael was born; he was 86. So it you know, just—it just comes out exactly where he was. Well, lo and behold, what is the, what is the phrase? Uh, the well-laid plans of mice and men—is it well-laid or what kind of way laid? Uh, <laughs> go off astray or gang af a glay or whatever it was. <laughs> best laid, oh, okay, the best laid plans of mice and men. I've never really figured out what plans mice have, but I know that uh, men have some pretty, unless it's in Garfield, you know, those, those mice do have some plans in, in the Garfield, if you ever watch, read the Garfield comic strip. But, uh, lo and behold, Hagar conceives. Not long after, you know, maybe as a result of the consummation of the very, quote, wedding night, if you want to call it that, she was given to him as a wife. She conceived. Now, as I said before, not that it really mattered in those days, one way or the other, but it did prove that Abram was not responsible for Sari's barrenness. The impact of the stigma of barrenness is illustrated by what happens now in the mind and the heart of Hagar. She had been apparently a loyal servant to Sari. Sari would not have given her to her husband if she had not considered her almost like a sister or, or someone who was very faithful and could be trusted, right? But suddenly she has a great change. Now, Hagar was a second wife, as we note here. But Sari remained every, in every way the mistress of the household. But when Hagar became pregnant, what happened? The passage tells us that she became arrogant and less willing to serve Sari as a true servant. Because why? She was going to be able to do what her mistress was not able to do for the master of the household. She was going to be able to give him the one thing that he longed for more than anything else at this time, an heir. I mean, he had lamented before God that the heir of his house was going to be Eliezer of Damascus. I mean, it was a real lamentation. He, he really didn't want that to happen. He longed for a son, and God had promised a son. And so now she was going to be able to provide that heir. I mean, she knew the plan, but nevertheless, it was her son by blood, whatever was the claim of sorry to her, to, to this child. The word in the Hebrew for that's used here, where it says she despised sorry, has the sense of holding her mistress in little esteem as a woman and as a wife. In other words, in her mind, This one she's serving is an unworthy woman and an unworthy wife because she hadn't done this simple little thing of giving the master of the household an heir. Well, very, very quickly, the plan, the plan, began to reap very serious negative consequences, to put it mildly. It had seemed so logical, and it was so acceptable in that culture to do this. But we're constantly reminded, are we not, of the fact that God's ways are not our ways and that the finest of human logic is, is ridiculous compared to the logic of the Almighty. Ever read some of the great philosophers? And, and they make such arrogant statements. And, and they're so wide of the mark. And to realize that some of the most brilliant minds that have ever lived are so much further from the truth than the simplest little peasant who trusts in his maker. But God constantly emphasizes the fact that it's it's the meek and the lowly that he honors and the haughty he rejects and despises. They They had walked in accordance with the standard of the world. They had done nothing that was not acceptable to the standard of the world. But over and over again, the scripture clearly makes it obvious to us that we're not to simply live by the standard of the world. We're called to a higher standard. The standard of God's Word, which is why I hope we study it. It's a higher standard. There's no way that we can bear witness to a pagan society No way that Abram and Sari could bear witness to a pagan society if they rose no higher than that society. If they lived at the level of that society, if they lived according to the uh, standards of that society, what witness were they? We're supposed to be a light shining in darkness. But if we're living in the same darkness, there's not much light there. We all become a bunch of black holes, so to speak the truth that applies to them applies to us. Scripture tells us that we're to be the light and the salt of this world, does it not? But what kind of light and salt are we if we don't act any differently from the world? If nobody really knows what we are and what we stand for. If nobody, you know, you, you ever once in a while, you, you hear about somebody who, uh, someone at work suddenly discovers they're a Christian, they've been working alongside them for 20 years and never knew that they were any different. You think, you know, that's really living at the world standard. If, if there's nothing that shows up that's any different, there's something very, very wrong. Because Jesus made this point very clearly, I think, in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's just read a few illustrations from that. And, of course, it's, it's made clear all through Scripture. But to me, these are, are pretty pointed. And I've just picked a few here from Matthew chapter 5. Verse verse 13, we read, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all, all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Then he goes on to to make some very interesting statements. In verse 21 he says, You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, shall be guilty before the supreme court, And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. And down in uh, verse 27 and 28, another similar statement. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now, Jesus is, of course, here simply showing that sin is deeper than just the outer act, outward act. It comes out of the heart. But he's also illustrating that the standard for the true believer has got to be higher than the standard of the world. You don't just not stick the knife in the person's back. You've got to have a heart that forgives that person and doesn't want to stick the knife, but you refrain simply because you're a Christian. That doesn't really make you different from the world. If you've want, if got murder in your heart, as far as God is concerned, you're no different from the world. You may, you know, it may make a difference to that person if you don't stick the knife in the back. But in, in God's eyes, the guilt is the same. And, and the same with adultery. And so the true believer has got to walk according to a higher standard. And what is so tragic is that in the church in America today, we're finding those standards are kind of coming down. And, and the standard Christians are living by is becoming more and more the standard of the world. The world is infiltrating the church in a horrendous way. Uh, And and this, of course, is destroying the witness of the church. And as you know, the church has become quite politicized, which doesn't really seem to to fit in in accordance to the teaching of Scripture. So there's really uh, a a serious situation going on. And uh, only God, I believe, can turn that situation around. Well, let me just... uh, We're running out of time. Let me just uh, end with, um, with this. Whenever God's commands are ignored or are intentionally violated, the consequences are always very, very serious. Because I think this is at the heart of it. God's commands are not the arbitrary declarations of a capricious God but they are the loving warnings of an all-wise Heavenly Father. God does not give us his commandments because he wants to see us jump through hoops. He gives us his commandments because he is the maker, and he knows what will make us fulfilled, what will bless us. And thus the commandments were put in. Every once in a while, maybe you've done as I've done. We thought, why, why did you really command that, Lord? It should be a whole lot easier if that wasn't the thing I, I could, could not do, you know. And, and yet when you think about it, what makes us a whole person, what makes us have contentment and joy is to do what God commands, not because we've fulfilled the next step or rung, but because that's the way God made us to be. And we've got to rise above the standards of the world, because the standards of the world are geared according to the teaching of the father of lies, of the prince of the power of the air, of the evil one. And as the scripture says, he's a liar from the beginning, you know, and whether it's the playboy mentality or whatever kind of mentality we're talking about, it's a lie. It just isn't the way it is. Not only is it not the way it is in God's eyes, it's just not the way it is when it comes to trying to fulfill even the desires of the flesh. It's all a lie, and it's all empty. And Abram and Sarai will pay a very, very heavy price. As we'll note next week, Sarai is worse off after Hagar becomes pregnant than she was before. I mean, it was literally frying pan to fire. Yeah, that's that's the way it goes, isn't it? (laughs) Frying pan to fire situation. And of course, Abram would be drugged along with it, and it would be worse for him than it was before. Suddenly, instead of peace in the household, he's got chaos. He's got women hating each other and blaming him, and uh, (laughs) it's just not built for tranquility.